All right. We are going to be on page 27 in your confession. So chapter 9, and we finished section 3 last week, so we're going to pick up on section 4 today. And before we get started, I will ask if we have anyone that is willing to open up in prayer with us this morning. And if not, I am going to volunteer. Pete. Amen. All right, so before we get started, sometimes I get questions outside of Sunday school time, uh, which is fine and good, Um, but I I sometimes feel like it would be beneficial to discuss it in class, because I always feel like if one person asks, then there's probably a few people thinking about it. So one that came, um, I got a text from Diane this morning about what we had talked about last week and so I'll just go back a little bit to that and we can discuss it a bit further Um, and if there's no more discussion on it then we'll keep moving on and if there is then then it's good that we brought it up. So we talked about, we got on this, we're, we're talking about free will and I don't exactly remember how, but we got on the topic of what about infants who die or, or handicapped people who die without kind of the faculty of their mind that, uh, that we are accustomed to. And I, I brought up three possibilities, and I guess really only discussed two of them. Um, but I'll throw it out there. Does anyone remember, what, what would be the three possibilities when we answer the question about what happens to infants who die in infancy? Sean. Okay. We don't know. Yeah, that's one of the answers. Yep. Yeah, so the, the, the three that I think are actually possible are all handicapped and all infants who die in infancy uh, are with the Lord. And I ended up saying that that is the position that I personally hold to. The second is the children of believers... Um, and some base this on 1 Corinthians 7, that it says that the children of at least one believing parent are holy, uh, and so they understand that to say that children of believers uh, are with the Lord. And the third is we just simply don't know. And so we trust that the Lord of heaven and earth will do what is right. Um, and so those are the three views that I think are entirely 
possible within a biblical framework. The one that I would say we must reject is uh, the possibility that, that Sean had mentioned. We must reject the view that children are saved on the basis of their innocence because they're not innocent. So the, the position, even though I understand all children are with the Lord, uh, it's not because they're innocent, it's because of an operation of grace. And I saw a hand up here, Mr. Taves. Mentally handicapped, yeah. People without the faculties that we are accustomed to as, as functioning adults, yeah. That's what I mean, yeah. Okay, so Diane's question was, and I'm paraphrasing her, so she'll have to hold me to account here that I'm understanding her correctly. I didn't discuss much the view that we just simply don't know. So some children may be with the Lord and some may not be. Um, and if I'm understanding her correctly, that was what she... Uh, was curious about, isn't that a possibility? And I'd say, yes, that is a possibility. Certainly it's a possibility. Um, because we're working with inference here. We're not working with something, you know, there's not a, a portion of Scripture dedicated to this topic. So we're working with inferences from several passages of Scripture. And then the follow-up discussion was, uh, if my own view is correct, that all the handicapped and all who die in infancy are dying in a state of grace, why would we as Christians then be so adamant about pro-life stuff? Right? So in other words, uh, if all who die in infancy are safe with the Lord, that means all those children who get murdered in the womb are with the Lord. And so for their sake... Um, why would we be so adamant about saving them if they get a direct trip to heaven, whereas uh, if they are allowed a proper life, uh, their odds are not 100%. So why, why would we be adamant then? If all children do go to heaven, why would we be adamant about pro-life stuff? Am I understanding what you were asking properly, Diane? Am I paraphrasing it well? Okay, so does everyone hear, does everyone hear the, the question? Does everyone hear the, the weight of the dilemma here? So how would we answer that? How would we answer that? Jesse. Okay, great answer. Great answer. It almost sounds like you've gotten some reformed teaching somewhere. Living for the glory of God. <laughs> Good. Yes, that's right. Okay, so we're robbing them of any opportunity to be salt and light in the world. Right? To, to enjoy God. That, that's certainly one of the answers that we would give to this. What else? Marina and then Jeremy and then Keith. Okay, and that alone, right? So if you didn't hear Marina, she's saying 
God has created a culture of life. A culture of death is satanic. It's demonic, right? And so abortion is necessarily demonic in the sense that it celebrates death, right? So it's, it's evil in its own right. It's demonic, and that's correct as well, certainly. Um, then Jeremy. Right, so the ends don't justify the means. Right, okay, and also true. These are all good and true, totally biblical sound answers so far. Keith, okay, okay, Carrie. Okay, so it's a denial of God's ownership of that life too, right? Yep, yep, Jolene. Amen. God hates it, right? And, and Jolin makes a good point about this connection between sexual deviance and loving death. Right? In, in the Old Testament, it was Moloch worship. Right? You sacrifice your babies to Moloch in order for a, you know, a good barley harvest. Um, we do the same thing. And it gets more absurd and more out in the open. I think it was Bernie Sanders that mentioned maybe a, two years ago or so. Uh, one of the benefits of abortion was how helpful it is for climate change because it helps with this supposed problem that we have with overpopulation. Which, if you're working with the Christian worldview, there is no such thing as overpopulation. Right? <laughs> it, it, it's silly. God has created abundance on this earth, and we are just barely beginning to tap into it. So I, but it, I just keep getting reminded, whether it's abortion, whether it's socialist economics, whether it's you know, same-sex mirage, whatever... Uh, all who hate me love death. All those things are a literal death wish. <laughs> right? It, it, it's self-harm. It's, it's a literal death wish. And so we do not want to cave to that. So for that reason alone, abortion needs to be rejected. Anything else? Keith? I had someone ask me when we talk about the cultural insanity and the culturally accepted sins, I had someone ask me why I talk about we, because I'm clearly not willing to go along with it. Say, well, why do you say we do this, we do that? Because you you reject all of it. Right, but I'm still part of the collective we. If we believe what the Bible says about interdependence and covenantal faithfulness uh, and covenantal union with each other, I am in a very real way represented by Justin Trudeau. We hate God. And we in this church love God. We. Right? You can't just separate. We can't atomize people. People are part of a collective. And if God decides to curse a nation, the believers feel that too. Right? 
And believers can also be salt and light. God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for a handful of believers that he didn't find. Right? So there is this covenantal blessing and cursing. And if you're a Christian caught up in a society that is under God's judgment, you will feel it. And if you are an unbeliever who happens to be in Connecticut in 1740 during the Great Awakening, you are going to receive many blessings despite the fact that you hate the God from uh, where those blessings come. So there is, it doesn't change anyone's eternal destiny, but it does dictate the kind of times we live in, for sure. Who represents us? What's the spirit of the age? Anything else? Alfred? Is abortion murder? Well, and that's, when I was working through this question, that's straight where my mind went. And of, of course it is. Right. Yep. Yep. And going down to follow, so Alfred's asking here, is, is abortion murder? And of, of course it is. It's the unjust taking of a human life. Um, Calvin actually says it's, it's worse than that because now you're intruding into someone's home to murder them. What should be the safest place for human life on planet Earth is inside a mother's womb. We live in a time where that is the most dangerous place to be alive. The womb is the riskiest place to be alive in North America today. What a tragedy. Okay? All who hate me love death. Okay? And if anyone's ever curious, you know, there's this obscure Old Testament law that people speculate lots about, and there's lots to be said on it. Who's ever stumbled over, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk? Okay? okay? Don't take that which was meant for blessing and nurture and turn it into death. There's lots of things, I think, typologically. Jesus going into Jerusalem as a kid being boiled in his mother's milk. So I think there's a typological connection. But abortion clearly is a violation. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. This is meant for life. And you're turning it into an instrument of death. And to go down Alfred's path a little further. So now let's remove it from abortion. And let's talk about first or second or third degree murder or whatever. Uh, assuming that Alfred's against murder, are you against murder only against Christians, Alfred? Or, or if, if somebody shot an unbelieving little old lady, would you object to that as well? Yeah. So, so the, the crime is separate from who it's committed against, right? It's murder whether you murder a, a Christian person or a non-Christian person, right? Um, so... In that sense, it, it shouldn't matter what happens to the baby after they die. It's still murder. And we object to it just on the sheer basis that it's murder. And whether or not that the, the, the victim of murder goes to heaven or not is a separate question from whether this is a heinous crime. And it is a heinous crime regardless because even unbelievers are made in the image of God. Okay, So unbelieving humans are God's image bearers. Yes, the image is marred. Yes, they are in rebellion against God, but they, the image is still there. The image is still there, and we cannot unjustly take human life. And I say unjustly because I, I do believe things like just war and capital punishment are biblically lawful. So I will say unjust taking of human life and, and still leaving those. Yeah, Dave.
did everyone hear Dave? No? Okay, so Dave's saying on the path of biblical law, you know, there's this supposed moral dilemma, well, uh, would it have been ethically right to abort Hitler before he was born? And everyone's instinct might be, ooh, that's a good question. But biblically, it's, no. You can't. On what basis would you? Okay? On projected foreknowledge, maybe. Um, But in terms of biblical law and the limits of the state and the limits of the sword, you can't do that. Once he commits his first war crime, yes, Hitler deserved capital punishment. Okay? World War II was a just war, and somebody needed to kill Hitler. He did it himself. Okay, so that's not what we're saying. But in terms of the limits of biblical law, we actually need a violation of a capital, a capital offense. Thought crimes, biblically thought crimes exist only with God. Okay? The, the civil government should not have uh, the lust police or the impure thoughts police. No one wants to live in a world like that. We don't want to live in a police state. Right? And it could happen that even in Canada we might get criminalized for thinking the wrong thoughts. I'm sure that'll never happen, but, <laughs> but maybe conversion therapy will be illegal one day, okay? Um, but we can't do that, right? And biblical law sets clear limits, and Dave is saying, and this is a Christian concept. Well, we're far off from free will, but that's fine. Because you can't control where these go, and I like that. Um, in terms of biblical law, Who is happy that in our Western law tradition we have innocent until proven guilty? I am. Because Christian legal theory says this. Exactly what Dave said. It is better for a hundred guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to get hanged unjustly. Why can we as Christians assert that? Because the rapist and the murderer and the thief will not escape ultimate justice. If we as Christians understand that God's justice is ultimate, it's eternal, and it never makes an error in judgment, we don't have to pull our hair out if a guilty man goes free. Because he will not ultimately go free. Okay? So Christians can just say, okay, we, we don't need to string everybody up who we think might be a murderer. Okay? If, if the biblical criteria met two or three witnesses, two you know, independent lines of witnesses, and... and or, or a plea of guilt, whatever, then yes, capital punishment or, or other punishments are, are totally lawful and just and biblical. But what you'll notice what's happening in our day, as we remove ourselves from the Christian law tradition, the vigilante mobs, the Marxist mobs, want everyone strung up right now. Right? Pull that statue of Queen Victoria down now. Pull that statue of John A. Macdonald down now. Pull William E. Lee down now, right? The Marxist mindset, the revolutionary mindset works with guilty until proven innocent because by very definition, Marxists hate God, okay? So there is no ultimate justice in Marxism. The only thing that exists if the state is ultimate is the state. If there's no God above the state, the state is ultimate. And now suddenly you're in an environment where it would be better to string up an innocent man rather than risk letting a guilty man go free. And we are moving into thought crimes and, and, and all kinds of unbiblical things. Okay? So as Christians, the gut instinct towards taking law into your own hands or vigilanteism may be strong, especially if you'd witness a real injustice in real time. Uh, and yet, 
biblical law doesn't change. Okay? Two or three witnesses, innocent until proven guilty. No one will escape God's judgment. Uh, and the, the pressure's down. We don't want to become revolutionaries. We don't want to become a vigilante mob. Okay? Uh, biblical law prevails. Um, and when it comes to, to bring it back here to abortion and, and so forth, yeah, human life is made in the image of God and nobody has a right to take it. It's a heinous crime. And on that basis alone, uh, we need to be people of life. And we would, uh, I think it was Carrie, who said something, you know, equating it to made, roughly, right? Was that you, Carrie? Yeah. So same, same concept. I oppose made whether the person requesting it is a Christian or not. It's wrong. It's not your life. What's question and answer number one of the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What's your only comfort in life and death? Well, that I do not belong to myself but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Your life doesn't belong to you. You don't get to dictate the terms of who lives and who doesn't or when you want to die because it's really tough. We don't, it, it, it's not up to us. It's up to God. Okay? Anything else on this? Right, okay, so Keith, Keith just points out, are we trusting the Lord's purposes for the future life of these people, right? Am I understanding you correctly? Uh, and I think that is an important point as well, because, so, uh, I've said a couple times, my understanding is that all who die in infancy and all who are mentally handicapped or impaired are with the Lord. Uh, and that is what I think is most probable, given all the biblical data, but I'm not dogmatic on it. However, a distinction has to be made here. What I'm not saying, okay, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all people are elect or that they're innocent until a certain age, whatever that age is, age 6, age 12, age 20, and then the flip switches and some are elect and some are not elect. Okay? That status of election never changes in a person's life, never ever. Okay? It's fixed before the foundation of the world. So what I'm saying is that the only ones that God allows to die in infancy are elect from before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones that God allows to die in infancy. It's not as though somebody is innocent or somebody is elect until a certain age and then it becomes a roll of the dice if they are or not. Nobody's status changes ever in terms of election. In terms of conversion, you know, when that election is made visible, yes. Uh, but in terms of the actual status, it doesn't change. So uh, that person, if that child, and again, we're dealing with hypotheticals, but if that child in the womb is elect, uh, 
than whether that child dies at three months gestation or at 96 years old, they're with the Lord. And likewise, on the, on the flip side, uh, if they're not going to be saved, they're not saved at any point. Right? So somebody's status in terms of that doesn't, uh, doesn't change. We're working with blindness. Only God knows that. Okay? Uh, and so again, the, the objection, and this is actually, this is how it started, was in regards to infant salvation and free will, is that, and I'll ask this as a question, who's heard the objection to reformational theology that if God is ultimately the one who decides salvation, uh, this must be unjust because then all kinds of babies have no chance. Who's heard that objection? No? A few? Okay. I, I have. Um, and I want to turn that on its ear because when this debate was happening, it was actually the opposite way. If God is in charge of salvation, can he give infant-sized faith to an infant so that they're saved the same way that me and you are, by grace through faith? Yes, he can. Okay. If conversion happens as a result of your free will, you decide to be reborn. You decide to have faith. Now we're talking something that no infant has the capacity to do. If faith is something we produce, now no infant has a chance. And so when this debate was happening, uh, the Council of Dort in 1619, uh, I brought that up last week, it was the Reformed side accusing the Arminians, rightly, I think, you can't get any babies into heaven because somebody has to be smart enough and have enough faculties to choose salvation. They have to make themselves be reborn by an act of their will, and a six-month-old can't do that. But if salvation is a gift from the God, including the faith that saves us, God can indeed give that faith to an a preborn infant like he did for John the Baptist. And I don't know what prenatal faith looks like, but the Bible gives us at least one example of somebody who was born again before he came out of his mother's womb, and that was John the Baptist, okay? Because faith is a gift of God. And so babies are saved the exact same way that everybody else is, by grace, through faith, not by innocence, okay? By the rebirth, by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how we got on this topic. More on that. Jeremy. Yeah, I'm not sure we have enough data to say one way or the other. We know it can happen. Um, based on that. And I would say, again, despite us not being able to see the hidden operations in a person's soul, I know lots of sincere, genuinely born-again Christians who cannot ever pinpoint the moment of their conversion. I'm one of them. So what happened to me? I, I don't know. Was I regenerated before my mind was involved? And so I've, as long as I remember, I've always been uh, walking with the Lord. Maybe. That, that could be. So I think we have to have a category, at least, that says we don't know when and how this happens, that God opens up the eyes of the blind. 
For some, he does it in a crisis moment when they're adults and they clearly know what's happening, right? They, they've fallen off the bottom rung of the ladder and their life is a disaster and they come to the Lord in a crisis moment. And those are the people who, by the grace of God, have an exact time of their testimony and their life changed uh, dramatically. And praise God for that. John Piper says he was saved from a life of sex and drugs at age four. <laughs> Not that he was involved in those things, but he was prevented from those things because he remembers coming to the Lord at age four. And many other people have no recollection whatsoever. And that's okay. <laughs> to me, it doesn't matter so much that we know when a person is reborn is that they are. And to give a rough analogy, who in this room remembers the moment that they came out of their mother's womb? Does anyone remember being born? Okay, does everyone in this room know with certainty that they were born? Okay, does it matter that you remember? Not at all. You're here, you're alive, you're breathing. I don't care if you remember or not. Okay, I don't care if someone knows the date of their conversion. You're spiritually alive today. Praise the Lord. I don't need to know when it happened. Their spiritual life, I'm good with that. I don't need to see secret operations of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord, you're, you're alive today, spiritually. Keep trucking. Uh, Lisa and then Jolene. Right. Okay, so Lisa's asking about, so the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think is beautiful, and I fully affirm, um, there's kind of three G's that it walks through. Guilt, grace, and gratitude, right? So our guilt is established by the law of God. Grace is established by the gospel. And then our Christian life is one of overflow of gratitude towards the Lord, right? Not of dead service, but of an overflow of thankfulness for what the Lord has done. So to what degree does someone have to uh, reckon with their guilt before their rebirth? And I'd say in most cases, especially for adult converts, clearly that has to be. So when we're doing evangelism, that it, the gospel must be presented that way. For people who grow up in a Christian home or who are, let's say, born again at a very small age, I would expect that they will grow into that knowledge as they just grow in their concepts whatsoever. Um, but uh, just like they won't fully understand the extent of grace as a four-year-old, they won't understand the extent of guilt as a four-year-old. You work in those concepts at an age-appropriate level, but I think from very young, we have to teach our children about our guilt before God. Even if they are converted, then still, then still looking back, they have to understand what they were rescued from. We are blind to our sin. And, and I think that's even biblical. The Apostle Paul himself, as he matures in his Christian faith, read his letters chronologically. He's a sinner. He's a bad sinner. By the end of his life, when he's undoubtedly more sanctified than he was at the beginning, he's the chief of all sinners. 
Okay? And he's not wallowing in it. He's not beating himself up. He's just growing in his understanding of how radical the gospel is. Right? So there's a growing awareness of his natural native sinfulness as he is sanctified. And that would, if you're saying that's true in your life, I'd say that's true in my life too. And this can take a dark turn where we start to beat ourselves up. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is to rejoice that the gospel is much bigger than we thought it was. The gospel gets bigger. Amen. Yeah. So the point, of, uh, the point of that is not to beat yourself up and stay in worm theology. The point is, I, I was delivered from this? That's amazing. It keeps getting bigger the more we understand the weight of God's law. Jolene. Yeah, and, and so Jalen's pointing out we're, we're dealing with different vocabulary even, different worldview, right? We would say, I think rightly, abortion is murder. It is. I'll write it down and put my name on it. Abortion is murder. And if I would go to the women's study department at U of W, I'm guessing I would hold a minority viewpoint, <laughs> right? Um, because what we're dealing with here isn't a few points of moral disagreement. We're dealing with entire world and life views. And Christians need to come to grips with that. We're not moving the furniture around differently. Everything is different. Okay? And so even when we're dealing with apologetics, which is another area that interests me a lot, coming up with Aquinas' five arguments for the existence of God... Yeah, they're fair enough arguments, but it will do nothing. Like nothing, nothing. Because apologetics that's based on this argument here, this ar- it, you've got to work with the whole package. How do you know what you know in the first place? What's, what's a human? Right? And how do you know, you know, if Jesus doesn't care about any of this, why do you care that I think abortion is murder? You're imposing your moral standard on me. Where'd you get your moral standard from? How do you know that I'm a misogynist? How do you know that? And even if I am, why is, that, why is it bad to hate women? Right? And, and just through questions sometimes, but, but we are dealing not with little pieces here. We're dealing with entire worldviews that are completely at odds with one another. It's the difference between being in Christ or in the outer darkness. And so we have to have patience and grace as we, because we're not dealing with <laughs> minor adjustments or tweaks. It's a complete overhaul. It's a completely different way to see reality. This is true. Dave. Yeah. 
Right. It's just a blob of tissue. Very good. We've got a few minutes. We should at least touch on the confession. Number four. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also will what is evil. Okay, so this is looking at now a converted person. Who's ever read Romans 7? That which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I do, do, and, and it's a mess. Okay? And you wonder what's going on here? Has anyone wondered what's going on in Romans 7? Okay. Is this pre-conversion Paul or is this post-conversion Paul? This is discussing exactly that. So let's look here. When God converts sinners and transforms them into the state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin. Who wants to read Colossians 1.13? Vel. And who wants to read John 8.36? Who's got that? Caitlin? Lisa, I'll get you the next one. Okay, Colossians 1.13, Vel. Okay, and so I think, I don't know if we got into this last week. Maybe we did. That verse seems familiar. But notice, who's the actor here? Who's the mover? God. God delivers. God transfers. Okay, and it's us who is being acted on. He turns on the lights. John 8, 36. Okay, you will be free indeed. So we've been rescued. This is a rescue operation to remove us from the trap of sin and death and rebellion against God. Then it says, and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Lisa, do you want to take Philippians 2? And it says 13, but do 12 and 13. Please. Okay, this is one of those things where we talk about is there any ultimate conflict between man's moral responsibility and God's absolute sovereignty, okay? Who is supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Who's working it out? You. Who's responsible to work out their salvation with fear and trembling? You and you and you and you. You are responsible to do this. You must. This is not optional. You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And just when you think, okay, but I can't. Right, correct, you can't. Good news, (laughs) keep reading. For it is God who works in you, both to work and to will for his good pleasure. 
Okay? You work it out, but God works it in. You are the one who must obey, but it's all animated and energized by the grace of God. God works it in, you work it out. God fills you, you pour it out. Okay? You, must be the, you must be active in your sanctification, and yet it's not a solo mission. It's God working in you, not just to do the things, but notice what it says here. Both to will and to work. If you want to put sin to death, that's from God. Your want-tos are in the hands of God. Okay? Your willingness to be sanctified is itself part of the gift of salvation. Okay? Both to will and to work. Jeremy. That's right. Yep. God fills you. You pour it out. I would agree with that. Okay? So this is how we can be sanctified is because the Holy Spirit is changing your want-tos. He's changing your desires. Growing you in conformity to the Son. And it keeps going. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly nor exclusively will what is good, but also what is evil. And it's 10.15, so we'll get into this very difficult text maybe next week. But at a high level view, here's what it's saying. An unregenerate person has a will, but it's a dead will. Okay? I use the analogy of a zombie. An, a a non-born again person is like a zombie. They are the walking dead. They're walking, they're breathing, they're living, they're making decisions, but they are spiritually dead. And they want nothing whatsoever to do with God. Okay? A glorified Christian in heaven is walking and breathing and living and only wants to do the will of God. All the remaining sin and corruption is gone. The church militant, that's us, the people that are still on earth here working this out, we're in this in-between place. The old man is dying and the new man is being raised up, which means we can sympathize with Paul in Romans 7. I want to be free from this sin, and yet I'm not. I want to do the right thing, and I can't. I want to put sin to death, and I'm struggling. Okay, Because as the new man is being raised up in us, and the old man is being put in the grave, we work with competing desires. Can anyone in this room relate to that? Does anyone in this room experience competing desires when it comes to your holiness? I do. Okay? Because any time you sin, at the moment of decision, at the moment you're sinning, you are deciding that the sin is worth it. And yet, if you'd zoom out all the way, you'd say, well, no, of course, sin's never worth it. But then you get to the moment of decision, and you've decided, yeah, sin is worth it. Talk about a confusing place to live. And that's where everyone in this room is living. Okay? The new man, uh, in terms of a legal declaration, all happens at once, in terms of God's judgment. But in terms of our actual experience, this is a process. It's a process growing in holiness that's made perfect at death. Okay? So the, it shouldn't surprise us that the old man isn't dying without a fight. And that the new man needs to fight to be raised up to full life. That shouldn't surprise you. That is the Christian life, is competing desires. And so I think it's born again Paul. It's Christian Paul in Romans 7 talking about this battle that's happening inside of him 
because it's not complete yet. We'll get into that next week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your kindness. Lord, I want to thank you that you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, and I pray that each person in this room would know that, that we have been transferred from one to the other. Lord, and if we do not know that or if that has not happened, then we ask for each one who does not yet know you in a saving way that your spirit would touch them, that your spirit would take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. Lord, that each person here and those around us would turn and live, that they would choose life, that they would choose to know you. Lord, and we know that that is only possible by your spirit. So Lord, I pray for you to do a mighty work in this church and in our families uh, and in our communities. Lord, that we would see people come to know you and to grow in conformity to you. Lord, and for those of us who do know you, I pray that as we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, as we fight against the old man, and as we fight to see the new man raised up, Lord, I pray that you would energize that battle, that you would give us the strength we need to fight sin, to put in the work, and to grow in conformity of you, that we would have true and lasting peace. Lord, I thank you for this church body. I want to thank you uh, for the sincerity of belief, for the genuine willingness to go where scripture would have you go. Uh, Lord, it's quite amazing if we think about it, that we have a body of believers here that just absolutely is committed to your word and to going where it says. Lord, I pray that I would not take that for granted. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that you'd be with Keith. Give him a sense of peace and joy as he prepares to bring the word. I pray for receptive hearts uh, for all of us, that we would uh, be shaped by your word and that we would live accordingly. Thank you for new life. Thank you for uh, David, who's been brought into this world. Lord, and I pray that you'd be with Mike and Chantel as they raise him to your glory as well. Lord, be with all of us as we live and work and interact with families, workplaces. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified in the lives of each one of us here this morning. Thank you for your goodness. We commit this morning into your hands. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.